Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to All the Small Things with me, Venetia Lamana. I am so excited about today's episode, but before we dive in, here's a quick message. If you know me, you'll know that period pants changed my life. My go-to brand for reusable period underwear is Wooker, which stands for Wake Up Kick Ass. They're founded by a Nepali woman called Ruby, who is on a mission to break taboos around periods with sustainability and inclusivity at the heart of what they do. If you're new to period pants, let me tell you how easy they are to use. You select pairs with absorbencies to suit your flow and wear them in the same way you do normal underwear, changing them once a day. You can wear them for up to 12 hours. There are no leaks, no smells and no waste. Wooker are a size inclusive brand with sizes ranging from 2XS to 6XL and styles and cuts to suit every body and person from thongs to high waist to lace to even sportswear. My favourite style is the Wooker Flex. The Flex is an adjustable pair of pants that features a strap similar to a bra that allows me to change the size of my period pants as my body changes. It's a true game changer. The other thing I love is their accessories, period or no period. This winter I'm forever attached to my Wooker wearable hot water bottle. I am obsessed. If you're looking to make a sustainable swap this year, why not start with period pants? I am thrilled to say that I have an exclusive £5 off your Wooker order for my listeners. Just head to wooker.co.uk that's w-u-k-a.co.uk and use code smallthings this is valid until the 31st of january 2023 please see the show notes for terms and conditions now it's time to dive into today's conversation featuring one of the most important women in my life my dear friend swati deepak Swati works with private and public foundations in strategy development and design, with individuals and families of wealth on their redistribution strategies, and she oversees a portfolio of businesses and startups across philanthropy, socially minded businesses and the arts. She was previously director of the Witham for Girls Collective, the world's only participatory fund by and for adolescent girls, and prior was director of Stars Foundation, a private philanthropic foundation funding grassroots organisations working with children and young people around the world. Together, alongside our friends Ruby and Davey, we co-founded Remember Who Made Them, which is a campaign and podcast championing a new solidarity economy in fashion. Swati is a guest lecturer for Columbia University, the London College of Fashion, and is on the bench of Stanford University's Global Centre for Gender Equality and is a practitioner in residence for LSE's Marshall Institute. She's a founding member of several collectives and groups working across philanthropy and social justice movements, including Closer Than You Think, Healing Solidarity and Shake the Table. And she's a board director of the Global Fund for Children and Empower, the Emerging Markets Foundation. She draws strength from bridging and convening for collaborative action across all she does to work for a world of justice and liberation for everyone. She is truly 
one of the most incredible people I have ever met. And I'm so excited to be chatting to her today about billionaires and wealth redistribution, specifically about Patagonia, because that was a huge story last year when their founder decided to give up their place in the world as a billionaire for the betterment of our planet and people. And we wanted to talk about this issue at length in a nuanced way. And I really, really hope you enjoyed this conversation. Here is Swati Deepak on All the Small Things. I'm so excited to have you here today and to be doing a podcast with you again. But before we get into the main bulk of this conversation, I would love to hear, do you have any morning rituals or habits that you like to practice as a way to help you feel grounded and do the work that you do every day? It's always a pleasure speaking with you, Felicia. You're the first person I ever did a podcast with. So coming back is like an absolute joy, especially in the midst of everything going on in the world. My morning ritual, I think, started when I was just a teenager. I wake up every morning and I meditate, usually for about half an hour, sometimes an hour, depending on just how I'm feeling and how much energy I need to draw from it. But it gives me a sense of grounding, a center. It's something that I learned from my mum, who's a yoga teacher and practitioner. So yeah, I usually do that, followed by a cup of chai or uh, hot water and lemon, but it really depends on whether I need the caffeine hit or not. I find when we're together, I always ask you about how you spend your time. You do so much. And I'm just like, how does she have all of this time? So I would love to hear about how you got into doing the work that you're doing today, because you have one of the most fascinating jobs. So tell us how you got into doing the job you do today and also how you would describe it maybe as well. So I would say I'm definitely somebody who is working in the pursuit of social justice and liberation for all people around the world. I want to live in a world where we are free and in joy and in dignity. And the current way that I feel that I'm doing that in the majority of my time is I work as an independent consultant with families and individuals and advise them on how they redistribute their wealth. That's done mainly through philanthropic advisory. But I also work with large private foundations, governments, and I work with feminist, racial and economic justice movements around the world that are working on liberation. I think how I got into it is really just a mistake, if I'm really honest. I'd always been within grassroots movements, development. So I worked a lot in youth rights, children's rights. I worked in sexual reproductive health and rights and in healthcare access around the world. And then had always sort of been in that space where you're struggling for resources to actually open clinics to be responsive to people's needs to be able to respond in humanitarian crises and was always just really interested in where the money was coming from and the kind of power dynamics that sat on the other side and ended up in philanthropy I worked in and then led a private philanthropic foundation and then a donor collaborative focused on getting funding to adolescent girl-led organizing around the world so yeah it's just been an interesting journey but I think overall it really just concerns the fact that power is concentrated in many ways around the world whether that's in who holds money who holds decision-making power 
who's creating policies and we need more radical shifts in people committed to liberation and freedom and justice actually in those places of power to try and disrupt change and make sure that we don't have power structures like that in the future. I think based on the fact that we're going to be talking about billionaires today, perhaps we could start by contextualizing what one billion is and how one billion compares to one million. Yeah, I think that's a really good place to start because honestly, in the English language, the difference between a million and a billion is one letter. And so I think we attribute such a small change between what a million is versus a billion. But actually, if you take millions and billions in the context of seconds, a million seconds is about 12 days, whereas a billion seconds is about 31 years. So in terms of really thinking about what it means to be a millionaire versus a billionaire, the scales are absolutely astronomically different from one another. It's just a ridiculous sum of money that nobody really needs and can't spend. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful contextualization. Thank you. So currently we're facing the worst cost of living crisis in the UK A lot of experts are referring to this time as a humanitarian crisis. And at the same time, we have more and more billionaires popping up. Apparently, there is one new billionaire created every 30 hours. How did we get to this point? We are in really urgent times. And although it's disgusting to think of one new billionaire created every 30 hours, in 2020, according to Forbes, a new billionaire was created every 17 hours. So people were on average 5 trillion better off than they were before the pandemic. So if you're thinking just about the level of harm and injustice and vulnerability that has been placed on people around the world, even just since the start of COVID-19, to now, the wealth gap has really increased since then. I think a lot of it is to do with obviously tax structures in a lot of countries and taxes for companies and for wealthy individuals has been dropping or stagnating, whereas taxes for the individual person and much smaller companies have been rising steadily over the years. I think it's also really crazy. We are living in an age of AI and robots and all these efficiencies that we're sold, you know, like things are online and it makes things much easier. But the fact that we now live in a world where more and more people are working longer hours than they ever did in order to just feed themselves and that that vulnerability is increasing just points to a flaw in the system. This is not something that people have brought on themselves. The capitalist system that we're all working and operating in globally has led to this point where we're just in pursuit of creating more and more, but the redistribution of where resources are actually going is so inefficient. People are still in awful spaces of poverty and crisis around the world. So we really are in a place where systemically it's got to a point where we just shouldn't let it go further. But then again, I think a lot of people seem to have this idea that billionaires have worked super hard to earn their money and so they deserve it. Is this true? 
It's a really good question. And I don't deny that people who are billionaires have worked hard. And you know, they've taken time away from their families, their loved ones to develop and create these, you know, vast companies. I think the problem again, for me, goes back to the system. It's not denying that these people have not worked hard and don't deserve recognition for their hard work, their successes, their innovation. The problem for me is that we celebrate that over the hard work that lots of other people put in. You know, why is Elon Musk's hard work compensated and celebrated in a way that a nurse's or a domestic worker's is not? You know, if you've ever gone to places in the global south where you see people toiling on the fields, you cannot say that those people have not worked hard. You cannot say that they've not innovated. You cannot say that they've not sacrificed. And many of them, as we know also from speaking with many garment workers, take pride in the work that they do. It's that we don't celebrate them and they don't get compensated in a way that even acknowledges their hard work or gives them any dignity. I think the other thing that's kind of wrong is that we sort of see this accumulation of wealth and the bottom line of companies in terms of their profits. And we have billionaires lists and Fortune 500 lists that sort of celebrate things that are just on the bottom line. We don't look under the hood at what decisions that meant. If that meant that people were exploited, that people were paid way below minimum wage that we exploited and destroyed important ecosystems in our planet. Are those really things that we should be celebrated as shrewd business decisions or as innovative business decisions? And this is, again, the critique of the system and not of individuals. I'm not denying that billionaires have not worked hard, but like, why don't we celebrate everybody who works hard? And why are people who work really, really hard in all hours of the day still struggling to pay for heating or pay for food? And the thing is, people will be like, but there's always been injustice. But we live in such abundant times. It's not okay. And shouldn't we be progressing as humanity and doing better? We have created and we've innovated We have technology, we have the internet, we have all these electronics and AI and robots that are meant to make our lives better. And yet, like millions and millions, if not billions of people are still struggling every single day just for basics. If that was eradicated, if people lived full lives where they could be They could live truly free and abundantly with the resources we have in the world. I wouldn't be offended if some people were billionaires, but it's because billionaires come at the cost of other people. That is the thing that's the problem. Completely agree. Me and you have collaborated in fashion or kind of fashion justice, I should call it, over the past couple of years. And I think fashion is a really useful tool for us to look at the expansion of wealth and how a company is able to build exploitative wealth, what I would have referred to as exploitative wealth. So perhaps we could look at an example of a fashion brand and use that to illustrate how we got to this place where we have, you know, garment makers, for example, on in the UK and Leicester, £3.50 an hour, and then a billionaire CEO at the top. Absolutely. And, you know, I think breaking it down in that way makes it much more 
available to us in how the system really operates. So I think we could take any fashion brand, you could call it H&M, you could call it Boohoo, you could call it any of the large fashion brands. And really, I think it starts from a need to sort of Uh, create a company where you're going to see good profits coming in. And so when you come from that perspective, you're thinking about, okay, well, where can I source materials that are cheap, that are easy to get hold of, and that can be produced quickly. And often that leads us into very unsustainable forms of garments. Because when you think about organic cotton that's being grown without, you know, pesticides and pulled and plucked versus polyesters and nylons that are coming from the fossil fuel industry, already there's a decision made around, am I going to go for something that's better for people and planet? Or am I going to go for something that's going to make me the most amount of money? And most of the fast fashion brands like lean towards, okay, well, I can source the materials that are cheap here, as opposed to here. So that's one decision. The second goes from where they're going to be able to actually get the labor that's going to make some of these clothes. And You know, unfortunately, the system that we're built on at the moment, and I think, you know, Leicester is an exaggerated phenomenon of where we are. But I think, you know, when you look at fashion's history, there were countries in the global south that were already producing great fabrics and materials, and they were destroyed in favor of factories here in in the UK. So the Lancaster or the Manchester Mills. What then happened in the UK as we started getting more equal rights, more human rights, more labor rights, we started getting minimum wage requirements, you know, employers had to be aware of health and safety or had to sort of give us days off or sick leave. Like So all the things that had been asked of to make our working lives as sort of humane and dignified as possible and rights-based, as those started increasing in Europe... A lot of fashion CEOs were like, oh, well, if we have to give all these workers these rights, our costs are going to come up. Where else can we go? And so a number of big trade deals were then created that enabled these companies to kind of up from the factories here in Europe and North America and move it into other regions and countries where they didn't have labor laws, labor practices, etc, etc. And so they could continue to operate in unsafe places where their levels of responsibility towards people and planet were like vastly reduced so that their profits could increase. And so the fact that when you look at how garment workers pay has remained the same over so many years, whereas fashion billionaires have increased probably like tenfold, if not 20fold. You can see that that model of exploitation is one that the fashion system is built on. But also, I think you could argue in many respects, the levels of vast wealth that are being created, they're not being created without consequences on people and planet being exploited in order for that level of profit to even be achieved. Thank you so much for explaining that. That was just so helpful. If anyone is interested to kind of dive a bit deeper into the intricacies of this, I would really recommend our Remember Who Made Them podcast. I am interested to know, based on your experience working with billionaires, you obviously work with them to help them redistribute their funds. Many billionaires give a lot of their money to charities. Is this truly coming from a place of like golden intention or is it tax avoidance? 
I mean, it's a really good question. And I think we have to remember that the system of philanthropy, as we see it in its sort of mega realms today, is built off a really broken system. And it's symptomatic of like power problems that we have in our societies today. I think to your question just around a lot of the people that I interact with and work with and I know of in the field who are billionaires, but also centi-millionaires who are like people who have 100 million or more, which is still really, really vast sums of money. I would say that there's a really mixed bag. I think that there are like tax structures in place that incentivize them to actually give. You know, they either are paying that to the tax man or they're paying that out to NGOs, charities, development organizations. And, you know, you could say that actually we really believe in democratic communities and societies and governments, especially like the ones that are structured in Europe, mostly where we have like welfare states and societies, you could actually say that by being and giving like the taxes to governments, you're actually allowing more funding to kind of flow to better societies and and better spaces. But I think on the other side, there's also acknowledgement that sometimes the government is also broken within the way that it's operating and that needs still persist and exist. And we still need to lean in in those moments of time and need. And so I think that there's just a balancing of what we're thinking about when we think about tax avoidance versus giving. I would say that a lot of people that I work with, they're aware of how broken the system is. They're not people who are just like, this is great. You know, I'm making a great difference and I want a pat on the back for the amazing stuff that I'm doing. I think genuinely, I'm really lucky to work with people who are interested in changing the system. They don't want to see a world where there's this model of philanthropy that is just continued for generations to come that their children or grandchildren will continue just sitting on pots and pots of wealth and giving that out. I think they're genuinely interested in how do they play a role in changing the systems of power. And you know, I'm not trying to deify or glorify them in any way. But I think many of them also come from marginalized backgrounds themselves. So I work with a lot of first generation wealth holders, people who are black and people of color, who come from places in the global south, their proximity to the communities that they work in, their understanding of some of the issues and where we actually need to lean in to support broken systems is really important. And I think also those that are coming from generational wealth as well, they are on journeys where they're understanding how their wealth was even accumulated. What were the privileges that they have today and what are the kind of systems that they've been built on? So there are these incredible networks for young high net worth individuals called resource justice and resource generation. And they do a really great methodology where it's like, what is my story of wealth in my family? Who made it? who were the communities, uh, what parts of the world were really exploited in order for my wealth to be created. 
And also what am I actively doing in order to try and not just right those wrongs, because you can't right wrongs with money. But I think it's about acknowledging how you need to lean in with your social, your political and your financial capital to be in service to the communities who have been marginalized and continue to be excluded and vulnerable as a result of problems in your funding. And so I think that there are definitely philanthropists that are out there that are just doing it for tax avoidance, that are probably doing it to feel better, you know, to leave a legacy for their family name. But there are also a number of people who I think are genuinely wanting to see a change and an end to the system, who are part of communities that are coming together to try and reform and call on tax changes. And people who are genuinely interested in utilizing what resources they have to try and redress some of the power imbalances we live in. So, so interesting. And learning about how you inherit and earn money and wealth is a really useful thing to think about. Speaking personally, my privilege is something that I'm always trying to think think about, dissect, redistribute where possible. But it feels like it's just this ongoing process that I'm going to be interrogating for the rest of my life. That's exactly what most people are on this journey on. They're going to still continue to operate in the world. They have to address the fact that they operate in a world where they are going to continue to be privileged, even if they gave away all the money their social, their political, their cultural privileges don't disappear just by emptying your bank account. Of course, they're vastly reduced, but they still have education, they still have passports, they still have privileges, they still have access to social networks. And so for a lot of them, it's really about being so aware of where their privilege sits and constantly interrogating it on a daily basis that all of the privileges beyond just the financial are in service to try and redressing some of the problems in the world. And it is something that all of us should be thinking about. I guess like another thing that I did also want to talk about when we think about billionaires and philanthropists is also that sometimes we spend much more time punching down instead of punching up or even being aware of what is up and what's around us, there is a lot of negative critique of a lot of philanthropists in the space. So if you take George Soros or Bill Gates, I don't think that any of them are perfect individuals or are doing all the good things in the world. But I do think it's really important to recognize that there are very invisible philanthropists who are ultra high net worth individuals who are funneling really dark money philanthropically. So through charitable vehicles to NGOs and development organizations that have much, much darker agendas than the ones that we often take a look at. So the Global Philanthropy Project did this incredible piece of research and found that over the last 10 years, more than $6 billion from US-based Christian right philanthropy had been going into anti-gender and anti-LGBTI work all around the world. And so there are philanthropists out there with very dark agendas in place. You know, when we're looking at the changes of abortion laws in the US, when we're looking at the rollback on equal marriage of the rights of LGBTQ individuals, when we're looking at a lot of the rollbacks that we're facing around the world, these things are 
amplified and have been created from philanthropic money. And so, you know, when we think about whether philanthropy is going to save us, whether billionaires are going to save us, I would argue absolutely not. Like, there's just as much, if not more, going towards very dark agendas compared to people who are even trying to do this redressing and trying to put funding into the hands of movements and communities and groups and individuals who are fighting for liberation and justice for everyone. That is very dark and depressing and so important for us to know about. Thank you. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So let's discuss Patagonia. The founder and owner of the outdoor clothing company, Yvonne Chouinard, announced in September that his family was transferring 98% of the company's stock to a newly created not-for-profit organization dedicated to combating climate breakdown. This has created quite a stir. So let's talk about it. They proudly announced in their press release that Earth is our only shareholder. Is this just a form of greenwashing? I would love to hear what you think. I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts. So really good question, Venetia. There's definitely been a lot of buzz around this space. I think I will quote one of my friends and mentors, Maura Bailey, who says, I give myself permission to disagree with myself later. Because I think that actually, the premise of what Patagonia has done feels really important, really necessary, really exciting. However, there is still opaqueness in the way that they have structured their work. And I think that as we find out more on how their trust in perpetuity has been structured, we'll find out more and more. And what I mean by that, and why I find it exciting and important is that I think if you followed the journey of Patagonia, you know that the founder, Yvonne Chouinard, he's said throughout a lot of time that every billionaire is a policy failure. So he is well aware of how broken the system is. I've watched a lot of his philanthropy and a lot of his giving over the years. And he has been funding lobbying. He's been funding tax changes. He's used his personal voice and his company voice to actually talk about tax changes that need to happen, that call out social injustices that are happening, particularly within the US context where the company is based. 
I think it comes back to the fact that we do operate in a capitalist system and it means that the routes to radical wealth distribution are still really limited. So for me, you know me, Venetia, I am all for the revolution and with everything even just in Iran happening in, at the moment and hearing Suella Braverman's speech on you know, her dreams of sending immigrants on a plane to Rwanda. It's days like this where I'm filled with rage and I just want to burn it all down and start again. But I also sometimes recognize that a lot of the systems of capitalism, of white supremacy, of patriarchy, they've built up over so many centuries and they permeate through all of our lives that sometimes even burning and starting again starts with the same remnants and it starts with the same defaults that these systems have created for us. So actually understanding the systems and what is taking us back and what are the default settings we come back to, it feels really uncomfortable, but really necessary for us to do that. And so when I think about Patagonia, I think that it's exciting to see more and more companies actually trying to circumvent those default outcomes. And what I mean by default outcomes is all of our policy structures, the way that our companies are structured, the way that charities and organizations, the legal structures are in place, they sort of default. It doesn't matter the intentions that you sometimes put into it. It defaults for communities still picking up the slack, the most vulnerable people still being impacted. It's still means that employees are being exploited. It still means that people on planet are being exploited. And that is the default. So Patagonia trying something new that is purpose-driven in its approach, that feels really exciting. Whilst I'm for burning it all down and starting things over and new companies coming in in place or new systems of solidarity coming in place, because we operate in a capitalist system, for you to start a company from scratch, you need time, you need money to create the spaces for alternate systems and for creativity. And both of those resources rest in the hands of current power holders. And unless those power holders start developing new systems, and we come up with new radical ways of changes, we're going to keep going in these cycles where the default will take us back to where we are. And what's also interesting is that they're not the first people to create an organization or a company like that. There have been many companies and organizations that have done this in previous years, but they've been very small or lesser known. And so no one's picked up on them in the same buzz. And so there's a, there is something to be said by, you know, Patagonia has offered up like a space for discussion and debate that's really necessary and has been missing because it's only been in much smaller spaces and our media just won't cover that kind of discussion. That's really interesting to hear and makes perfect sense. I was wondering how much you knew about the board that Patagonia have put together and if there's anyone on that board who you feel excited about and also a little bit perhaps about where the funds are going. I think Labour Behind the Label, who were a fashion campaign group in the UK, made a really valid argument that a more radical move would be if all garment makers for the brand were paid a fair living wage. One of the reasons why Patagonia have built this huge amount of wealth over the years is as a result of exploitation of people and planet, even though they are one of the better and inverted commas brands. So yeah, maybe let's start by thinking about the board and the funds and then we'll go into to garment makers. 
I don't know a lot of the board members. I am really excited about Ayanna Elizabeth. I think she's an incredible intersectional black feminist. And I feel like we need those voices. In the UK, only 1% of everyone who's on a philanthropic board is black or a person of color. So we need people who come from marginalized communities with experience of different vulnerabilities to absolutely sit on the board. I would absolutely, to your point, urge Patagonia to make sure that they have worker representation from within the supply chain and the brand because I agree. I don't think that companies should just be able to do like a great kind of philanthropic vehicle to right the wrongs of how the money is being accumulated. And I do agree with Labour behind the label that actually... I hope that that corporate governance board that's been put together for Patagonia and in future on the purpose-driven track that they have stated their intention for of the future of the company should be on making sure that they right wrongs in how the money's even been accumulated. Because some boards are interested in how much money is being created. And you know, what you don't want from this kind of board is that they're so focused on doing good with the money that's being generated by the company that they have no questions and no kind of interrogation or critique of how much money that they're making. Actually, you know, you you would want minimal profits if your company was operating fully in line with the rights of people and planet really seen throughout the entire supply chain. And actually, at your annual meeting at your AGM, you would look and be happy that your profit margin was only $1,000. If that was the purpose was making sure that people and planet in the production of your work, and the people who worked in your supply chain were fully within their rights and exploitation and extraction were, you know, minimal to nothing. And this is not just for Patagonia. I think we have extra critique for Patagonia, but we need to bring that energy to all of the companies that aren't doing anything to actually make sure that they're changing up the systems. Isn't that interesting? It's that classic thing, isn't it? Of like, someone says they're doing something a bit good. So we all get hyper cynical and super judgmental and try and come up with a hundred different hot takes as to why they're not doing things as well as they could be. And then we save none of that energy for the brands and the corporations and the individuals who are doing nothing. I think that is so interesting. And we could unpack for another podcast. The day the news was announced, one of our campaign kind of slow for the Remember Who Made Them campaign was really brought to my mind because I saw a lot of memes going around the internet saying, everyone run to Patagonia, I'm going to buy a new fleece. And it reminded me of our slogan, solidarity is not a t-shirt. This is not a time to be rushing to buy from Patagonia, right? And, And there's a reason for that. We shouldn't be fueling more and more consumption. The most sustainable things, Venetia, that you always say is that The most sustainable clothes are the ones that are in our wardrobe. It also honors the people who made our clothes and also the environment that suffered for the making of our clothes as well. You know, like so much has gone into the pieces that we already own that we really need to just honor that. So don't rush out and buy a t-shirt. Really take time to understand what you want versus what you need and make sure you sort of work from an angle of just what you need and live within appropriate means. I think it's funny that people are just like go to buy a new one because they're sort of missing the point completely. 
What do you think policymakers and leaders could be doing to ensure that we don't rely on a brand like Patagonia to fight things like climate breakdown? Ultimately, we all want to live in free, vibrant democracies uh, around the world and everyone have a stake in the decision making of where we are. And I think with that, like we can't leave the changes that we want in the world to individuals, whether that's companies or billionaires, like they're definitely not going to save us. And as the owner of Patagonia has said himself, every billionaire is a policy failure. And whilst he spent a lot of time and energy trying to change systems, the systems are still perpetuating and we need all of us to kind of lean into those changes. So we need appropriate taxation systems. We live in a world of abundance. There is enough land, there's enough resources, there's enough food, there's enough fuel for everybody to live with abundance. And, you know, that is a beautiful teaching of black feminism is to work from a space of abundance and the acknowledgement that there is enough. The problem is, is that a lot of our current taxation systems and the policies that surround them actually concentrate money in the hands of very, very few people. And it doesn't redistribute wealth in a way that acknowledges that there is enough for all of us to live really abundant, beautiful lives full of rights, full of justice, and hoarding it in the hands of a few people or making decisions about who should have access to those resources over others feels completely at ends with where we want to see our world for everybody. Alongside appropriate taxation systems, we actually need labor laws. So all countries need to have and support unions, collective movements and community organizing. These are people who are actually have given us sort of weekends, they've given us working hours, they've given us minimum wages, they've given us paid time off, paid parental leave, um, sick leave, pensions. This has all come from labor organizing around the world. And what it does is it allows people who are working to be able to come together and demand working conditions that actually allow them to be able to benefit from the vast sums of wealth and money that's been generated in companies. We also need to be supporting grassroots movements, especially those that take like a feminist, racial and climate justice approach in the work that they do. These are people who rise up and say, this is not right. And we demand a space for our voices to be heard. We need change to happen. We want to be included in the discussion and debate or we have solutions. And we really need to be supporting those movements at time. Our world will not change unless these kind of three areas, the support of movements, the support of labor rights and appropriate kind of taxation systems and trade deals as well that go with them because as I mentioned at the start simply having those in place in the country that we live in and not making that appropriate in other countries just means that we're like well it's great we have all of those rights and all that taxation now going on in the UK and all the people that are in pursuit of that money will just move to another country where we don't have it in place so it really is a global fight to make sure that we live in a world that benefits everyone truly. I can't get over that answer. I just feel like there was so much in it and I, I'm obsessed with all of it. How would you feel about a quick fire round? 
do it. <laughs> Quick fire with Swati. Wake up early or have a lion. Wake up early. Coffee or chai? Chai. Twitter, TikTok or Instagram? Instagram at the moment. Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk? Neither. <laughs> Fiction or non-fiction? Non-fiction. Podcasts or TV series? Podcasts. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. Routine or spontaneity? Spontaneity. Lovely. What is your one non-negotiable daily self-care habit? Meditation and eating, obviously. <laughs> what have you read, listened to or watched recently that you'd love to recommend? Oh, I feel like Undrowned, which is Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Animals, is like so left field, but beautiful. Great recommendation. Haven't heard of that. I'm going to leave that in the show notes. And finally, what is one thing that you hope your older self will have achieved? I want to make sure that I move as many millions, if not billions, to grassroots feminist movements as possible. I feel like it's a journey that I'm on and one that I feel really committed to. I already know that putting money in the hands of people at the grassroots who've got lived experience of injustice is going to move us forward in the world that I want to see. Thank you so much. It's just a joy to listen to you and your knowledge and every answer was just so brilliant. So thank you so much. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please be sure to hit the show notes for useful links and further reading. If you enjoyed the conversation, I would love for you to help me get the message of the podcast out there. You can do this by sharing the link directly with a friend or putting it on your Instagram stories, tagging me at Venetia Lamana and tagging the show at ATST Podcast. And if you really, really love the conversation, the most helpful thing you could possibly do would be to leave the show a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening and I will see you back here next week same time same place for a brand new episode mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market